1: hello everybody and welcome to another episode of audio judo i'm kyle and i'm matthew and we are proud members of the pantheon podcast network it's a network of uh, musical podcasts uh, you can check them all out at pantheonpodcast.com matthew i know for today's episode you had a very specific podcast you wanted to recommend
2: yeah i'd like to recommend uh history in five songs by martin popoff one of the most respected and prolific music writers on the planet He has written over 9,000 album reviews, What? well over 50 books.
1: Wait, wait, wait. 9,000 album reviews, that's very impressive, but over 50
2: books? Are you kidding me? He has the experience and knowledge you're looking for. I just finished his book, Time and a Word, about the history of progressive rock band Yes.
1: That sounds awesome. And it
2: was awesome. So please check that out. I apologize to anyone who's listening. I have a lime in my throat. (laughs) So it sucks. So, uh... Also, make sure you find time to check out our jazz podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz, which is winding down its first season, Uh, but we'll be coming back with a new season this year. Great. You can find that show at audiojudo.com forward slash audio, AJDJ, or anywhere that podcasts our podcast.
1: Uh, Matthew's got lime in his throat because uh, if you listen to one of our previous episodes with Roger Klein, we were trying really hard (laughs) to get his uh, Cancion tequila for that episode, and we got it. Yeah, we uh, got it. Uh, producer Randy finally found it and it is wonderful. It's delicious. It is delicious. You don't even need the lime. Uh, unfortunately, we took the lime. I should have skipped the fucking lime. It's a little a uh, little tingly Matthew's <laughs> throat. So, we're going to do our best with this one. But uh, today, Matthew, we are returning to your old stomping grounds, Yeah,
2: my roots. Your roots. I think any casual listener of Audio Judo knows that I am a Rush fanatic. Uh should be apparent by now. Fishianato collector, devotee of their work. Uh, We have done two episodes about Rush, one on permanent waves Mm -hmm. and one memorial episode on the late drummer Neil Peart. Yes. Uh, There were a lot of different directions to consider when I began to contemplate the next Rush episode. And yet you picked this one. Right? I could head down the popular road, talk about their biggest records, namely Moving Pictures or sales-wise, not critical-wise, Roll the Bones. Uh, I thought about the last record in their catalog or an earlier record to appeal to the masses, but I think... There'll be time enough for that. Nope. I decided to go controversial. Indeed. I decided to pick perhaps the most polarizing record in the entire discography, the record that sets many fans apart and drove a wedge between the old progressive dinosaur fans and the new wave of fans that were just beginning to have their own lives and resonated more with the sound, or for me more specifically, the lyrical direction that Neil was taking. Because we are talking about the 1987 record, Hold Your Fire.
1: Twelve people just shut this podcast off.
2: Right? They're like, fuck you. um,
1: One thing we, I I know we probably don't need to go over this, uh, but we got to start a little bit about Rush. So obviously they were formed in Toronto in 1968. Uh, uh, Three primary members uh, from the, the, what we consider the classic lineup of Rush, uh, Alex Lifeson on guitars, backing vocals and the the gravy boat, Uh, Geddy Lee on vocals, (laughs) bass guitar, keyboards and glockenspiel. And of course, uh, Neil Peart on upside down bass drum, hippopotamus ribcage, and the muffler from a BMW R eleven hundred GS motorcycle. Uh,
2: These are all correct.
1: My next note says, "Why the hell am I writing any notes about Rush?" Uh, just say anything, and Matthew will be able to correct me. <laughs> so that's what I did. That's that's obviously what they the instruments that they play. Well, that's
2: true. Uh, everything you said up to this point is absolutely true. Perfect. So in nineteen eighty six, the band had concluded their tour of the previous record, Power Windows, in late spring. That album had gone platinum Mm -hmm. and continued a shift in the style of their music from a hard-rocking power trio to a power trio more involved in texture and songwriting and creating a larger musical soundscape, as it were. Uh, Every album of theirs had been an exercise in making themselves better or different or new or fresh. They weren't and never had been concerned with making a record that quote-unquote sells, but always more focused on making a record that interested them. So something that they could be proud of and would be happy to play night after night. Two words that that come to mind, authenticity and integrity.
1: Ooh, very nice words.
2: Uh, they, more than any other band I've ever researched, were about making something great that they loved, sales be damned. It's great to sell records, of course, but that's not why they were musicians. They were musicians because they loved making music. The power windows was a shift, like I mentioned. They were utilizing more and more keyboards and synths, more electronic percussion. Alex was playing with less distortion and more effects, more reverb, more delay. He also started to play less chordal material and more individual notes, which acted as more color and less crunch. And naturally, as a three-piece band, this became an area of strain for the band. He was having to search for his place in the music. Instead of being the primary melody maker, his role was being subverted to extra player as the melodies were more and more being consumed by the keyboards.
1: Hmm, Okay.
2: The middle range of the songs was being eaten by synths, by strings, and other tools of the trade, which left him questioning his place in the band and it wasn't about to get easier so after a month a few month break over the summer of 1986 to spend time with their families and enjoy holidays and do some pre-production work of their own they reconvened in the fall of 86 to start crafting this record their 12th record in 13 years hold your fire and one of the things that was happening that would influence their writing on this record and every subsequent release for the next 25 years was the technical revolution oh yeah uh, in years past rush would record every sound check every jam session on the cassette getty and alex would sift through these tapes looking to mine interesting riffs or progressions or parts getty would spend weeks labeling and cataloging these parts as choruses bridges verses and it would be a tedious process to find something they liked and dig it up and relearn it and put it in a song but along came the Macintosh <laughs> and a program called Digital Performer that changed his world. They were able to record everything digitally, label it, and most importantly, manipulate it within the construct of a song. This fundamentally changed who Rush was, and not necessarily for the better in many people's eyes and ears because what ha- ended up happening, at least to me, was some of the songs, and mind you, I am an absolute huge fan of this particular period, uh, the songs became disjointed. Mm -hmm. Parts seemed tacked on to places that wouldn't normally feel right, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. You have a comment? I
1: was going to say, I feel like this is a a case of um, getting a new hammer, Mm -hmm. where when you buy a new hammer, you're like, oh, hey, I bought a finish hammer. If you're a carpenter and you buy a finish hammer, suddenly everything that you're looking at is a finish hammer job. You're like, oh, I've got to put a finish nail in this and I got to get a nail set and tap that in real gently. And I got to, you know, but sometimes you got to frame a house. Right. Sometimes you got to put on a roof and you need a roofing hammer. Sometimes you need a framer's hammer. I feel like what happened was they got this new tool and suddenly they were like, well, we have to utilize this for everything because it makes things so much easier. Right. And then every single song after that, for a little while,
2: a long while,
1: a long while. All right. There we go. uh, uh, Utilized that tool and they kept saying, okay. Now we're going to, like you said, document everything we're recording, document every rehearsal, document everything. And then we can go back and pick little pieces out of it and make it all perfect and make it all, you know, exactly what we want it to be. And we know. Instead of having a a vague idea in your head, like, hey, you remember a few years ago when we had that idea for, you know, we played this riff or we played this idea? Yeah. What was that? And they can't find it. So they say, well, let's try to make it up again. And they do it again. And it sounds better than it did originally. And they say, great, let's go with that. Instead of doing that, they have an exact record where they can go into the Macintosh and say, uh, it was this this recording and this type of thing. And the Mac's like, oh, yeah, it was this session. They pull out that tape, listen to it, and they're like, ah, it was exactly that. Let's put that in the new recording. Yes. And I think that's exactly what happened here, is it was a, just a, a case of them finding these new tools and over-utilizing them and forgetting that, hey, yeah, you might have a new finish hammer, you might have a roofing hammer, but... You've still got your regular hammer in the toolkit. You should keep using.
2: Yeah. I feel like a lot of the organic element of songwriting went away. Yes. Where they now they could sit with something and be like, yeah, I like that part, but it sounds better as a chorus than a verse. So they just grab it and move it. And all of a sudden it's completely different sound. And that organic element of songwriting and jamming was gone. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, so after writing separately for a while, Neil at a cottage, scribbling out lyrics, and Getty and Alex at their home studios, they joined up in the fall to begin the actual writing process. Uh, this part of their method took them back to Alora Sound Studios, located in Alora, Ontario, about an hour northeast of Toronto. It's a small, rural community, and the studio was pretty remote with a barn, a recording studio, and some cottages. Remote, yes, but close enough to their homes in Toronto to be able to visit if the need arose. Uh, they recorded in their usual way, kneel in a cabin, writing lyrics, the other two jamming, and then getting together in the evenings to put pieces together. Within a month, they had the framework for eight songs. They were not happy with the full scope of the potential record, and they were unhindered now by vinyl, so they would add two additional songs to the album. This being the first Rush album to stretch beyond the 50-minute mark.
1: Because why not?
2: Right. Some of that has to do with the addition of the unofficial fourth member of the band, producer Peter Collins, a.k.a. Mr. Big.
1: Mr. Pig. Mr. Pig. Mr. Big!
2: So on the Permanent Waves episode, we talked about producer Terry Brown and his long-standing affiliation with the band. He engineer, engineered their first album in 1974 and would remain as producer for the next eight records, his last being Signals in 1982. And at that time, the band felt that Brown could predict every move they made in the studio and could also predict what his opinion would be about something they wanted to try. So they decided that that approach was counterproductive and that they needed a fresh set of opinions in the studio. So they let him go after Signals and they began the search for a new producer. That search would prove very frustrating.
1: I would imagine.
2: Uh, Apparently, they interviewed many of the biggest producers of the day. Steve Lillywhite was booked for the gig before pulling out at the last second to produce a Simple Minds record. (laughs) Trevor Horn from Yes came and saw the band, and they entertained hiring him before ultimately deciding to start the process on their own. During the recording, Peter Henderson was brought in to co-produce, although his indecisiveness would prove frustrating to the band, and he would not be brought back. So for Power Windows, the album before this one, uh, the band again interviewed many options before choosing Peter Collins. And he would end up pushing the technological envelope with the band, encouraging the use of synths, of choirs, of string sections, of essentially throwing everything you could at it, live reproduction be damned. (laughs) And what he allowed them to create were these massive sweeping soundscapes because of the style of the day. It sounds cold, though. Uh, There's not a lot of warmth on these records.
1: No, there's not.
2: But there's beauty and emotion one thing that had been lacking on previous releases. So there was a balance here. Collins uh, brought even more to this record. And when he showed up at Alora Sound in the fall of 86, he was mostly just in suggestion mode. A little bit of this here, a little bit of that there, events and sounds. So after they did that, they moved to the Manor in Oxfordshire, England for a series of recording sessions. Uh, sessions and we've talked about this studio before yes we have in the judo chop mike oldfield's tubular bells was recorded there Mm -hmm. and it was originally owned as a recording studio by virgin owner richard branson of course the manor closed in 1995 uh the big draw of that place was the large stone room where the drums were recorded
1: yeah the big reverb room yeah
2: they gave this big cavernous sound but apparently the place was shitty and very cold um,
1: Which makes sense. It's and, a big stone room.
2: Right, and yeah. they were recording in winter. So. Oh, yeah. They were there for three weeks working on the basic tracks before moving to Ridge Farm Studios. Ridge Farm Studios, also located in England, and we have talked about this studio as well. We have indeed. We covered this in the Oasis episode. hmm Your favorite. Yeah, my favorite. Purchased by a lighting technician in the 70s and turned into a state-of-the-art recording studio, and it was used as a studio until 2003. Uh, this was the first time... That Rush recorded here. And this is when another unofficial member of the band did his part. Ooh. Andy Richards, mm-hmm. keyboard programmer and sequencer extraordinaire of the times.
1: Holy cow. Andy Richards, dude, this guy has such a huge background. He's <laughs> crazy. He has programmed literally for everybody who used any kind of synth from like 1979 to like, well, from the 60s through the 90s. Anybody yeah. who used a synth, he programmed for. I don't mean that as a joke. No. I mean, legitimately, he was the synth programmer for that era.
2: He was the dude. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and that's what he did. He programmed the keyboards and the sequencers and and did all that stuff. And yeah. once they finished at Ridge, Ridge Farm Studios, they went to another familiar studio to us, Air Montserrat. <laughs> Surprise! In the Caribbean. So this is the second time they recorded down there. And as one might expect, it was an awesome experience.
1: Right? I it, mean, re- Caribbean island. Recording studio?
2: Yeah. How can you go wrong? They recorded all of their guitar overdubs on the island, but this would be the last time they recorded down there. So I outlined the history of the island on the Dire Straits episode, Mm -hmm. active volcano, hurricanes. It's pretty horrific. But there was some foreshadowing from Neil, even if he didn't know it. Uh, From the Hold Your Fire tour book, Neil says this. Oh. There's a live volcanic crater on the island where you stand in a cloud of sulfurous mist and all around you are vents of steaming vapors and bubbling volcanic mud. When you think about the fact that this comes up right from the center of the earth, it reminds you powerfully just how fragile terra firma really is and how quickly a place like that could disappear beneath the beautiful Caribbean Sea. That is beautiful. Right? That's three years before the hurricane that destroyed it, (laughs) and nine years before the volcano that he stood on tore the island apart. Oh, my. Well, how's that for premonition? Right? So after that, they returned to Toronto for more recording, a very important piece of recording that we will address in the track-by-track at McClear Place. Mm -hmm. That studio was a nondescript brick building that happened to record Ringo Starr, Steve Winwood, Aretha Franklin... And it too would be demolished in, t- in 2010. Because
1: why not? You know, just demolish history. Why not?
2: This is the first time the band recorded in Toronto in 10 years, and then they moved one more time to mix the album. This time, they arrived in the City of Light, Ooh. Paris, France. Bonjour. At, at the Guillaume Tell Studio, ah, which oui. had opened that year and it's still operational.
1: I have an interesting question for you. Yes. And not to interrupt. Go but ahead. Uh, Did all three members of Rush speak French? Uh, They spent- I know they were Canadian, and traditionally Canadians speak French. They did
2: not speak French natively, but in between Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, they took Berlitz uh, lessons, and they learned uh, learned French before they went to France.
1: Very interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, it just struck me. Please please, please interrupt.
2: When they arrived there, the city was still in the throes of what, what might- One might call uh, draconian measures due to the previous summer's terrorist bombing. Ah. Neil said, we had one or two bombs go off while we were there, though fortunately not on us. Wow. And you don't get used to seeing the soldiers and the gendarme standing around everywhere with automatic weapons and bulletproof vests.
1: It's crazy to think this was in the late 80s. Yep. Not the 1880s, the 1980s.
2: But with all of that moving around they still managed to release early. Hold Your Fire debuted on September 8th, 1987. Kyle, do you have the vital statistics for this?
1: I do. All right, good. So like you said, it is slightly longer than a regular uh, vinyl album, at only 50 minutes and 21 seconds. Not much, but enough. Released September 8th, 1987, their 12th studio album. Got to number 13 on the Billboard 200 album charts, which sounds pretty good. But it was the first Rush studio album to fail to reach the top ten since Hemispheres. Right, it's a little disappointing. Uh, it was eventually certified gold by the RIAA, but it never went platinum, becoming the first Rush album to not do so since *Caress of Steel*. Ages. Again, slightly disappointing, but uh, however, it is praised as some of Neil's best lyrical work.
2: Oh hell yeah! Which
1: is uh, very interesting to me.
2: Twelve years, right? Between *Hold Your Fire* and *Caress of Steel*. So, so one other thing ahead. we do need to yeah. talk
1: about real quick is the additional musicians that are credited on credited on this album. Oh, we're
2: gonna talk.
1: I mean, we'll get that. back to them as tracks come up. Sure, but, sure. Uh, first of all, Amy Mann, yes, uh, received some vocal credits on this album. We'll get to that. Yep. Uh, Andy Richards, uh, like we mentioned earlier, additional keyboard and synth- synthesizer programming. Fantastic programmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Margotius on string. He did the strings arrangements, and he was the conductor of all the strings for this album. Mm-hmm. The one that threw me for a little bit of a loop, though, was the William Ferry Engineering Brass Band, arranged and conducted by Andrew Jackman. I was 100% sure when I read that, that this was Rush fucking around. Not fucking around. I was 100% sure, because I can't remember the name of the guy that was credited on Permanent Waves. You probably (laughs) do. Who? I know I know exactly who, who you talk- And I was looking for the name, and I'm like, I can't find it anywhere. I don't know what it is. And you're like, that's just them it's fucking just a, around. It's just
2: a made-up name.
1: That's just a made-up name for them to screw with people. It's based on our names. It's based on our names. Uh, it was just a name they made up to screw with people. Yes. And I was 100% sure the William Ferry Engineering Brass Band arranged. No, that's real. And conducted by Andrew Jackman was fake. But it is, in fact, real. They started as the Ferry Aviation Works Band in 1937 by workers of the Ferry Aviation Factory. Uh, Among other aviation contributions, the Ferry Delta II aircraft was the first to exceed 1,000 miles per hour in level flight, and it actually influenced the design of the Concorde. The band was formed by members of the factory just basically for fun, Uh, but they became the Williams Ferry Band when the company was bought by Williams Holdings in 1986. Today... Weirdly enough, they are still around, and they are most known for their work in the genre Acid Brass. Ooh. Which- I like that. It definitely is an uh, acquired taste.
2: Acid Brass. Acid Brass. Um, so you know they're credited. You know that they don't appear.
1: Yes. What is the deal with that?
2: We'll, what we're happened? Gonna, we're going to talk about it. Well, okay. We're going to okay. talk about it. We will, I know we they will were, absolutely address I it. I know they
1: were credited, and then I was like—and then I, I got researching this, and I was like, oh, cool, they're a real person. That is actually part of the reason why I thought they might be fake, because I was like, they're not—I nope. don't hear a brass band in We
2: will—we're going to address it. What the
1: hell happened?
2: Okay, good. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad. So, as you mentioned— It failed to reach platinum, first one in ages. The critics were split, but the fans were also split. Mm -hmm. As I alluded to in the opening, the dividing lines between the old fans and newer fans had been increasing for years. After the worldwide success of Moving Pictures in 1981, Rush had a choice to make. They could churn out another version of that record and capitalize on the success of it, or they could do the thing that made Rush, Rush. They could sit down and explore new musical directions reinvent themselves to some degree, and continue to develop, to develop their sound, not try to perfect the Rush sound. And that involved moving in a direction that involved more keyboards, less guitar, shorter songs, more compositional elements, and less lyrics about space or Xanadu, and more lyrics about humanity. From Signals to Grace Under Pressure to Power Windows to this album, their sound had been getting less raw and shinier, brighter, And cleaner. Before we talk about album art, Hmm. let's talk for a minute about my connection to this record.
1: Oh, I knew there was going to be one. I knew there was going to be
2: one. So as we all know, I could talk about Rush for Hours at any time to anyone. Pick an album and just let me go. When this album was released in 1987, I had just come off of the summer of my 15th birthday and was about to start my sophomore year in high school. I remember vividly, like it was yesterday getting back from Harmony House on September 11th, that Friday, tape in hand, and setting up with my stereo on the front porch to listen to it. The album was a bit of a shock to me because I had heard the one single from it, Time Stand Still, which was wonderful, but a complete departure for reasons we will discuss. But I had been isolated up to that point in northern Michigan for the summer and didn't even know that this album was imminent. Now, when I heard the shiny and bright sound with these crystalline chimey guitars typically thunderous and well-mixed drums and getty's voice dropping even lower in the register i was intrigued by the record but it was what was being said that impacted me the most so this album while not my favorite record in the rush catalog that of course is permanent waves is probably the most fundamentally important album of my entire life wow the lyrics are the most representative scrutinized and applied lyrics in their catalog and they have influenced my life in so many ways we have talked about how i am definitely tuned into the lyrics on any any album that we talk about oh yeah and how they what they say is just as important if not more so than how they say it and i've always been a big poetry reader and for me the song any song is audio poetry and while there are great songs with shitty lyrics and great lyrics with shitty songs it is rare when there are great songs with great lyrics even more so when they when the song can actually contribute to conveying the message of said song so the lyrics on this album would not have worked with rush's older so- sound uh the aggressive hard rocking sound of youth okay nor would they have worked with the older returning to roots minor key experiments of their older material The lyrics begged for a softer, polished sound, one that is representative of what Neil is talking about. So we'll get to this on the track by track. But one of the things about Neil about this time was that he was taking up writing about themes, not Mm. concept records per se, but thematic records. Power Windows was obviously about power. Grace Under Pressure was about grace. And this album would be referred to as, quote, the instinct album, or as, as Neil would put it, temperament. Or the ah. idea of primeval and subconscious drives. So that that summer was the first one that I was really beginning to figure out who I was. I had had a first real relationship, or what I thought was real, hand holding shit like that, and it ended badly. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out what all those emotions were all about. I was hiding my lack of religious faith from everyone, and generally hurting like most 15 year olds do, and not really willing to talk about it with anyone. And this record came along with these words, these words that I would pore over and study and put into practice. And I know every note of it. And granted, it can sound a little dated, but there is perhaps the worst, and there's also perhaps the worst Rush song ever on this record. And it can be a little heavy handed at times, but to me, it is as excellent a record that has ever been done. And it should get more appreciation than it does. You ready to talk about the cover? That's right? very
1: nice, Matthew. Thank I, you. I, I like that.
2: You ready to talk about some? Let's cover? talk
1: about the cover. It's a Hugh Syme design. Yeah. Uh, photography by Glenn Wexler, uh, who's known for his pioneering work with digital photo compositions of improbable situations. I loved that phrase.
2: Improbable situations.
1: Digital photo compositions of improbable situations. Digital
2: composition.
1: Digital. Uh, he was working with digital photography as early as nineteen eighty seven That well, is
2: well, that's that's bonkers, right? When,
1: when this was done. yeah, but weirdly, this was not all digital.
2: uh no,
1: no. Uh, he's done album covers for Van Halen, Black Sabbath, ZZ Top, Shaka Khan, Chuck Wild, God. Slaughter, and, uh, Missing Persons. He's also created images for Michael Jackson, Kiss, Yes, Kansas, White Sink, The Black Crows, Boston, Steve Miller Band, Peter Franton, Bob Weir, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, and many, many others. He's also done a whole bunch of advertising campaigns and is all kinds all? of
2: crazy stuff. That's it, right?
1: Go look him up. Uh, Glenn Wexler. His, his catalog is immense. However... The cover for this album, very, very simple on the front. It's minimalist. It's very minimalist. It is a red background with three, let's call them balls. Yes. Uh, apparently floating above the cover. Yes. Uh, they have a little shadow behind them. Rush appears at the top with an effect that makes it look like it's sinking into the cover. Correct. And below that, Hold Your Fire and little black lettering.
2: Yeah. Cover, once again, designed by Hugh Sime, like I yes. said. He's been involved in every record release, single release, solo project, book release, Everything has a stamp on it, including Mm. the logo of the Starman that has become synonymous with Rush. You talked about Glenn Wexler. Uh, These balls are hovering. Uh, The inside cover. That's the big reveal. This cover is so simple on the front, but then you pop it open. Right. And that was supposed to be the original cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a massive mural of a downtown scene. Yes. Shot at night with an actor in the center juggling three flaming balls. Those balls just happen to be in the exact configuration of the balls on the front cover. Right, very nice. This inside cover took weeks to pull off. They built a full miniature set, mm-hmm. complete with mini Fresnel lights, mineral oil to complete the rain effect, and consistent with Rush, a ton of inside jokes and references to older albums. Right, uh, the Dalmatian from Signals, the clock on the wall set to nine twelve or twenty one
3: twelve,
2: the TVs from the Power Windows cover, and so on. They love stuff that was self-referential like this. right? And all this work had to be done by hand, compositing, emulsion stripping, all kinds of these long lost photographic effects. And when presented to the band, they had second thoughts about it.
1: (laughs) And they decided they wanted a new cover altogether. What is nuts to me about this whole thing is like you just said, the the set for this is a miniature built by Hugh Syme in a studio. Yeah. The shot, uh, the photos that they shot of the actor who was originally going to be Dennis Hopper Yes. Uh, But had to be recast because of some scheduling issues in a studio uh, were then composited on top of that. And then the flaming orbs that he's juggling are actually volleyballs covered in rubber cement that were shot outdoors at night were then composited on top of that. And when I say composited, I don't mean like Photoshop where you cut it out and paste it on there. No. Husime literally had to manually cut these out with a scalpel. Scalpel. And then use a process where he would remove it from the photo print of it and then paste it over another version of that. And if he screwed it up, he had to wipe the whole thing clean and start from scratch. (laughs) Olden times. Crazy. So there is a fantastic article about this that details the creation of the cover on ultimateclassicrock.com titled, Rush's understated Hold Your Fire Cover Hides a Big Surprise by Ryan Reed from uh, 2020. So it's a fairly new article. Right. And in it, Hugh Syme says, quote, to have the cover that sparse with a more intricate interior, I likened it to the liquid center on a candy. When you finally bite through it, you encounter the unexpected. Exactly. That is
2: such a cool quote for this. So yeah, so the new cover, while simple to the eye, was anything but q mm-hmm. says, this is the pre-digital era. Mm-hmm. Today I could have done that cover in the digital realm between the time I have my coffee and brush my teeth in the morning. So first, they had to firm vacuum form the lettering, so mm-hmm. they had inverse lettering. So <laughs> what you see is not embossed lettering, but de-embossed lettering. Yeah. Uh, they then glued the letters to a styrene board and wet sanded it with a thousand grit sandpaper. <laughs> they then took the board to a car body shop and painted it Ferrari red. Next, they photographed three billiard balls, which they then retouched photographically to enhance the luster, and Hugh added shadows to make them appear to hover abo- above the board. That is so nuts. They had one final problem. The red color they picked was too difficult for printers to replicate on CD using of CMYK ink, Ugh. so they had to mix five different colors, including a very specific red with ultraviolet to give it gloss. Oh my God. It is one of my favorite covers. So a lot of people speculate about the balls on the front and what they represent. And to me, it's very simple. It's the band. In the configuration they play sense. in, Neil in the center in the back, Getty on the right, slightly thrust forward because he is typically singing, so he's more forward. And Alex to the left, set slightly back. I think it is the perfect representation of them. Set in this austere setting with the signature Rush Red. I think it captures them in a very unique but telling way.
1: It is an incredibly simple album cover. It's so great. Until you, like you said, you yeah. learn how it was made. And then it's like, oh my God, they put a ton of work into
2: this. Yeah, it's not just Red with three balls. Yeah. Like, it's it so much.
1: so much meaning to it. It's so good. I love it.
2: Yeah. So, uh, we will take a break?
1: Yeah, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and do the track by track. Sounds
2: good. The winter is nearly upon us, everyone, and it's about this time of the year that I start shifting from normal, chilled wine to something a little warmer. How do you feel about tea, Kyle? Uh, I'm not a big tea drinker, but I have had it before. You know? I had like a lot of different teas, but if you think you know tea, then you haven't tried Tiesta tea. Ooh. It's premium loose leaf tea. It comes in five different varieties like Energizer and Slenderizer and Relaxer whole bunch of flavors like Maui mango, lavender, chamomile and fruity paradise. Ooh. Uh my favorite is nutty almond cream, Ooh. which is a perfect cup to just chill me out before I go to sleep. That sounds very much like a nice wintry blend. It's nice. Heather and I have uh tried some and she has a favorite or two.
0: We have. We have I actually really like that one as well. It it's reminiscent of a Snickerdoodle cookie. Ooh. So the scent like, when you're just kind of holding the cup and just, like, putting it up to your and nose breathing and the breathing steam that in. aroma in, it's, it's like a, a snickerdoodle just, like, blasting you in the face. Yeah. Ooh. It's awesome.
2: So, they are also our new partners. Ooh. And if you order with the code JUDO15, you can get 15% off your order. Just go to ts dot put in the code at checkout. That's JUDO15. Because once you go loose, you never go bagged. When you're smiling Hey you, it's me, Michael Bublé
0: For Bubbly Sparkling Water Bubbly is crisp, light, and refreshing It's got taste, and it's perfect for any occasion Keep on smiling Kind of like my voice, but in a can No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles The whole world smiles with you Bubbly,
2: crack a smile Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at dontsmothernature.com. That's Don't Smother Nature. Force 10. What? Yes, written in three hours. Yes. Are you kidding me? Opening song of the record, mm-hmm. the first single released, and the last song recorded for the album. Yeah. There have been a few songs over the years that the group, which is notorious for taking a lot of time in the studio to get songs just right, has written and recorded in just one day. The song Twilight Zone off 2112 and New World Man from Signals were also recorded at the last second. In this instance, the band had one and a half days left of studio time before they were set to head to a different studio and actually record the album. (laughs) They had nine songs at this point, and they figured, why not? So this song, as you mentioned, was built in three hours before heading to record. Uh, Spontaneity is the mother of invention. Indeed. It begins with some strange industrial noises, an odd opening for a Rush record, to say the least. There are a lot of theories about what sounds actually are. Uh, Some people believe that it's a sample of a jackhammer.
1: I had heard that one. In fact, I have a note about that.
2: Right, that keyboard programmer Andy Richards had in his bank of sounds. That's not what it sounds like to me. Hmm. I think it's just a treated snare drum with some delay and reverb. What do you have?
1: Okay, uh, That was my one of my big notes. The other one, uh, the two other big notes that I have is, uh, first of all, the lyrics for this are co-credited to Pye Dubois. Yes. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. That is correct. P-Y-E. Pye uh, Who is, uh, like I said, co-credited for the lyrics on the song. Uh, he had sent Neil some lyrics ahead of time, uh, which to which Neil added a few verses to make this song work. Pai Dubois had previously worked with the band on the lyrics for Tom Sawyer. Yes. Uh, And in case you don't know, he is a Canadian poet and lyricist, uh, mostly known for his work with Kim Mitchell, Max Webster, Webster. and obviously Rush.
2: Yeah. At at once, I'm totally bought in as an adolescent to the lyrical journey that Neil's about to take me down. So Neil said that the song expresses ways to face barriers and not to be afraid, even in the face of failure, fear, failure. Obstacles. As a kid of 15, listening to these words and knowing and believing that he is almost speaking directly to me is very powerful. Like you said, lyrics, a collaboration between uh, Peart and Pai Dubois. He co-wrote Tom Sawyer. I say that in air quotes because apparently all he typically did was submit a few words and Ah. a couple of phrases to Neil, like sketches, and Neil would flesh it out to a fully formed song. But in... The style of what Neil Peart was like, he would give him a full co-writing credit. Fair and not enough. Just say, oh, a, a couple well, of lines. That, that seems very,
1: that seems much more honest than a lot of other musicians would be.
2: Agreed. So uh, Neil was a self-avowed weather nerd. Mm. He used weather imagery or terms in many, many Rush songs through the years. And in this song, he uses the the Buford scale. Correct. Because exactly.
1: I think, think where you're going. Yes. I got so much information about this, it's going to blow your mind. It's a metaphor for how stormy someone's life is. Yeah. So tell me about the Buford scale. So the scale. Buford scale, the actual Buford scale, is uh, officially titled the Buford Wind Force Scale. And it is a measure that relates the wind speed to the observed conditions. Uh, it was created in 1805 by Irish hydrographer Francis Buford.
2: Hydrographer.
1: Hydrographer. That's a cool title. Uh, without going into too much science on it, it's a quick way to reference how severe the winds of a storm are on a scale of zero to twelve. Later, they added thirteen through seventeen as well, Correct. which are incredibly extreme.
2: The force zero is calm. Yes. Uh, land, it, land conditions exactly are expressed as smoke rises vertically. Yep. And sea conditions are expressed as sea like a mirror. Yep.
1: So totally flat, smoke rising perfectly. Force ten, however is a storm or a whole gale. Uh, Wind blows between 55 and 63 miles an hour, which is very fast. Waves as high as 41 feet. Right. That's a four-story building, in case anybody's counting. Uh, Very high waves with long overhanging crests, resulting in foam and great patches, uh, which is blown in dense white streaks along the direction of the wind. On the whole, the surface of the sea takes on a white appearance. Rolling of the sea becomes heavy. Visibility is heavily affected, Seldom this is experienced on land, however, when it is, trees are uprooted and considerable structural
2: damage happens. Right. And they're very visual. Like, that's Force 10. Force 12, hurricane force with land conditions listed simply as devastation. Yes. And sea conditions listed as, quote, the air is filled with foam and spray. Sea is completely white with driving spray. Visibility very seriously affected. (laughs) The visual descriptions just are are overwhelming, yeah, And if we are to take it as a metaphor for life, this person is going through some shit. really some shit. It yeah. is the storms of life. the ly- the lyrics look in to the eye of the storm, look out for the force without form. To me, that always meant that the calmness had to calm with had to come within me to battle the external fight or struggle I was having. Ooh. So the eye of the storm is the calmest part of the storm, right? Yeah. So that's inside, and I need to use that quietness to steel myself to battle what's outside. And this is what that song sounds like.
0: Look in to the eye of the storm Look out for the force without form Look around, at sight and sound Look in, look out, look around
2: So musically, this is Lee trying something newish for him, bass chords. He was uh, really good friends with jazz bassist Jeff Berlin. And at his suggestion, he started using them on this album. And it gave, it, it gave this his bass a fuller, kind of punchier quality to it. Hmm. Guitar-wise, this is part of their discography, where Alex, who is now trying to find a place in the song since the middle part is being eaten by keyboards, starts to get wild, frenetic with his solos. They become short, unpredictable, and while he used to dabble in whammy bar usage, now it starts to become part of his sound. Uh, Like I mentioned, this was the first single off the record and reached number three on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Track chart. Uh, It appeared in the live set for a majority of the rest of their career with them playing this song, Lil... almost 500 times. Wow, when they retired in 2015.
1: You talking about the history and and Alex having to find a new role in the band because yeah. he was being so over- overwritten Suddenly this album makes a lot more sense when you think about it in that from that point of view cuz almost all of these songs have some kind of a little guitar mini solo or yeah. a full solo in them and where he's really doing some like Stuff that doesn't sound like traditional Rush when you think right, about it's it. Right,
2: very gnarly, kind of like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. and,
1: and that to me, I, I that had never occurred to me until you said it. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's why he's doing this. He's trying to refine, okay, now where do I fit back into the band? Right. Or do I need to just fuck off?
2: <laughs> uh, and essentially, he was going through those moments. Yeah. Like, he was struggling to find a place. Like, why am I battling with a keyboard? Why do I have to, I used to be the melody maker. Yeah. And now the vocals are carrying the melody and the keyboards are carrying the melody. And I am, I am reduced to background. And it was a, it was a very weird time for them, especially for him when he would play a solo. You never knew what, what you were going to (laughs) get. It was like, Whoa, what the hell was that? But
1: would you say that it made time stand still?
2: I would, I would.
1: I love that. That's a command too. It's not time stands still. I
2: have this same. It is thing. time
1: stands still. It is a command, right? Telling time to stop and don't go any farther forward.
2: It's one of the finest of Rush's few pop moments and a complete anomaly in the Rush discography. This is the first and only time that another singer performed on a Rush song right? in their forty-one year history. They would utilize a couple of choirs over the years, but this is the only song with an identifiable other singer that singer is amy Mann, mm-hmm. lead singer at the time of the pop group till tuesday mm-hmm. of voices carry fame getty and alex recognized that they were writing the song uh the song that they were writing uh had a part that required a feminine voice and uh they began searching for people that would fit it best they considered chrissy hind from the pretenders uh even offered her the job and she couldn't do it cindy lopper but they settled on Mann, and they paid her uh two thousand dollars for her work
1: which seems very small to me when you think about it right? but
2: okay she also appeared in the video which we'll talk about in a second
1: oh my god i can't wait to talk about this video interesting
2: <sighs> interestingly enough uh they did use her voice one more time on this record they bas- backmasked yeah uh the part she sang for this song and use it for texture so this song is very obviously taking time uh, it's about taking time to realize where you are at yeah. and not letting it whip by not Not so much as being nostalgic and looking back, but taking the time to realize where you are and enjoy that and live in that. So, for years, when I have talked about my love for Rush, people bring up this song. And like you said, and they say, I love that song, Time Stands Still. Yeah. And I have to correct them and tell them it's actually Time Stand Still. No S at the end. They say, What's the difference? And there's a huge difference. Yeah. Time Stand Still is an observation. Time stands still is an observer, observation or a fact. Mm-hmm. Is basically saying that maybe for a second it feels like time stands still. But time stand still is a command. Like he is ordering it right. to stop or to become more aware of it happening around you. Don't allow it to pass you by. It's a subtle difference that I'm sure means more to me than most people. But there's a message in the lyrics like this. I'm not looking back, but I want to look around me now. See more of the people and the places that surround me now this is what it sounds like
0: still. I'm not looking back but-
1: This was actually the first track Neil wrote for this album, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and it, to me, this one is a little bit of a standout on here. A- and it kind of showed in the, in the charts. This peaked at number three on the US Mainstream Rock charts, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also peaked at number 42 on the UK Singles charts, which I had no idea. Rush apparently did not do so great on the UK Singles charts over the years. Nope. But this one was one of the
2: anomalies. So it's, And it's uh, it appeals because I think... So Getty always has that voice that is very polarizing Mm -hmm. to people. You either love it or you hate it. And because of that addition of Amy Mann and that feminine sound to it, this is one of my wife's very favorite Rush songs, and and I think that makes it more approachable. I think that extra voice makes it more approachable for a brief moment in time, like people can connect to that sound a little bit more. Uh, There are a couple of very subtle drum flourishes that he does in the song that amaze me to this day, and they just move by to very few people's notice, but in total service to the song. I used to spend hours in my basement trying to play this song. I practiced over (laughs) and over and never really nailed it, but it stopped me from trying or enjoying the trying or enjoying the failing. Yeah, And I think that that's kind of what he was talking about, you know, enjoying, like, not with force 10 not being afraid to fail at things in in the spirit of progress yeah and and that there's a fundamental reason why this record is so important to me because of when it landed and what it meant and that's one of those things so we'll we'll talk about that as we go along but the the video
1: Oh my God, this video.
2: It was absolutely groundbreaking at the time. Right? And uh, is now considered laughable and ridiculous. Right? Uh, directed by Polish
1: filmmaker Zbigniew Rybczynski. Rybczynski. Uh, which, by the way, that name needs more vowels in it. Zbigniew Rybczynski. Uh, I'm sorry, it does. But this video is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> so, the original idea, apparently. Was that they went out and they filmed a whole bunch of these pastoral nature scenes and sunsets, gorgeous and fields. They're very nice scenes. And then they were going to use this new compositing green screen technology to film the band in the studio and then composite them onto these pastoral scenes. Would have been nice, right? Right. Uh, but then uh, Zb- Big New, uh, who was known as Big in the in the studio, apparently uh, saw the space where they were filming and was like. Oh, I really like this. We should use this in the video too. Oh, and by the way, I kind of want the band and Amy Mann, who joins them in in the she, video.
2: She plays a camera woman. She
1: does. Uh, uh I kind of want them to just kind of fly around on the screen. <laughs> now, when I say fly around on the screen, it, I, 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 I literally mean they are f- floating the, on the screen. It looks like uh somebody's first day learning chroma key it's in, in, in Adobe Premiere and being like, oh, I'm just going to make all these characters float around on the screen. It's cringeworthy. Yes. At the time, apparently absolutely groundbreaking. And that makes sense because yes. this is a new technology and it was new and it was experimental. Um, it's brutal. Today it is bonkers nuts. You
2: can't watch it now without like, like oh, oh, yeah. oh no. No, no. And if this was what's funny to
1: me, too, is it has gone through this thing where groundbreaking, unusual, laughable. And now today it would be considered a comedy masterpiece. Like if they released this right now, people would be like, oh, th- oh this is it. hilarious. This is so funny. Go watch it on YouTube. And their fate, video- and their face—they're so They're serious. They're so
2: serious, so serious. Like, come on, guys! Getty,
1: Getty Lee's face while he is singing like, in this song—I'm totally bought into this. Not shit, looking back, man. Da, 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 da. and he's so serious in it. It's amazing. It is worth a worth the five minutes of a
2: watch. Interesting note: Les Stroud hmm. from the show Survivor Man, okay, was a grip. On this video, really, as that was his career before he became uh, began his survivalist career because it was filmed on the Much Music Studios, which was essentially MTV for Canada. Yeah, that's where they filmed oh. it. So he was a grip on this. Uh, oh, that's
1: cool. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a bad video. Check it out. You should do watch do,
1: it. do go watch it though. It's 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 a good bad video. Open secrets. Open secrets. This is
2: probably one of my top two or three lyrical moments in all of Rush. Really? But it didn't start out that way. Hmm. Uh, this is a less less than familiar song to anyone that isn't a devoted fan Agreed. of the band. Uh, even your somewhat serious fan of the band probably isn't that familiar with this song. This is hardcore Rush fan song. This is one of their songs that was never performed live, which may be sad because I love it.
1: There's a couple of those on this album.
2: There are. Musically, it lies somewhere between rock and jazz fusion and it kind of bounces around all over the place. It has one of Alex's explosive solos that is a very lonely-sounding solo. It seems to work outside of the construct of the song entirely. It's fiery, but isolated. Uh, It's very unique. Uh, Some of the bass and drum work is really fantastic, and the bass stuff that gets played towards the ride-out at the end of the tune is some of Getty's best bass work anywhere in their catalog. Uh, There's this great interplay between getting a meal that is super special it sounds like this Let it go.
1: Had read a note yeah. that this uh, originally came out of a conversation between Neil and uh, Getty Lee mm-hmm. about people that they knew in, in real life who went through their lives without ever addressing the problems that they were facing. Correct. And that whole ending there, let it go, let it go, let it go. That makes perfect sense. That's exactly what those type of people say. No, no, I'm not going to deal with it. Just let it go. Right. Just let it go. And just, we
2: all know people like just that. Roll, let it roll over you. Right. We all know people that have that. Has, it's been exacerbated by social media. Yes. People post all the good shit that happens in their lives, and then two weeks later that they post, they're getting divorced. Yep. And you're like, what? Because they only want the good stuff to show, and they don't want anyone to believe that they're going through any trials. But we all know that people are going through trials – So just be honest about it. Right. This song really began to affect me about seven years after it was released. So Heather and I were going through a a pre-marriage class. So when you get married in the Catholic Church, oh, and I guess I'm not really sure if it's this way anymore, but uh, you have to attend a series of classes with other couples and some clergy to determine suitability and address the issues that may come up once you are cohabitating. Oh my. It was an antiquated idea then, (laughs) more so now, but that's what we had to do. So in this one class, we were essentially being taught how to argue. You started by holding a pencil in your hand, and the only person who had the pencil could talk, and in order to get the pencil, you had to repeat or at least paraphrase what the other person had said. So it forced you to really listen to the other person instead of loading up your guns for your turn. Like I'm planning my argument. No, in order to get my chance to talk, I have to listen to what you're saying. So, and that's when the point of this song really took sharp focus. And I loved what he was saying because it was essentially that, listen better. This lyrical bridge right here, I find no absolution in my rational point of view. Maybe some things are instinctive, instinctive, but there's one thing you could do. You could try to understand me. I could try to understand you. Those are really impactful lyrics and ones that I hold on to this day. I utilized all those things, like eye-opening comments. I mean, for a while, when we were first married, that's how we argued. Like you you,
1: want. you were like pissed off And you had to go find a pencil Yeah And it turns out All you got is pens so you're I, like god damn it and You gotta get in the car And drive to the store I need fucking Buy it. a number two I pencil I need a number two pencil and Drive all the way home Alright now I got it Now we can argue And by that point You don't even remember What you're mad about It's such a great That's a good
2: system It's such a great song though It's, a, it's very 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 impactful for me You got uh, you have, it, you know?
1: No that's a, Pretty much I got
2: everything for it uh, Second nature Oof It's been one of the weaker songs on the record for me. This is a very 80s song. It's just a little too syrupy and keyboardy. It's it's the keyboards
1: in it that really make it feel of the time that it was made.
2: Uh, I think the melody is super strong. Uh, It just tends to get a little bogged down in the synths, and this is one where the lyrics can be a little Mm heavy-handed. The song works as a sort of acknowledgement that it is impossible to make the world a better place, and we all need to be aware of that fact, but we can all work to make the world at least a little bit better. Uh, Peart said this, sometimes we have to accept something less than total victory. It's like the difference between compromise and balance. The politician who campaigns for clean air but doesn't want to close down the stinking factory in his area because thousands of people will lose their jobs. My viewpoint is that I'll take as much as I can without hurting people. And there's just great pragmatism in his words. Mm. There has never been, nor will there most likely ever be a rock and roll lyricist like him. No. His aims were lofty, but he never compromised his vision. This song sounds like this.
0: I know you're different.
1: This could be a great like save the earth and climate change out uh like theme song. Oh yeah. I think it would fit so well with that. And I can't believe nobody's latched on to it thus far and tried to use it.
2: Again, it's a yeah. It's it disappears on in their catalogue. Yeah. But there's a section in the song uh where he utilizes uh now I lay me down in dreamland. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is taken from the children's prayer, or at least a paraphrase as such. Uh, the prayer is, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. First of all, that is morbid as fuck. Right? Uh, I remember seeing uh, comedian Dennis Miller do a bit about that <laughs> prayer. He's like, imagine saying that to a small child right before you turn off the lights. Yep. Yep. Looks like I'm not sleeping tonight. And I was like, what? Wait, what? Wait, Wait, if I die before I wake, what the hell are you talking about? The prayer actually originated sometime in the early 1700s, written by Englishman James Addison.
1: Presumably when children died all the time?
2: Apparently. I used to say that prayer when I was a kid, and it's not the best. Uh, Musically, although it has that strong armed ballad sound to it, it has a couple of cool moments. There's a big organ gliss towards the end that I've always loved. It's not my favorite, but it's a song I enjoy.
1: I prefer uh, Shel Silverstein's version of that prayer. It is, uh, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break, so none of the other
2: kids can use them. Oh, that is better. <laughs> I do like that. I do it's like pretty good. That better.
1: I don't know why I have that memorized, but it certainly is in my brain for some I, reason. I so. do like that. Uh, infant, uh, infant CPR gone. Like Pat Oswald said, uh, Shell Silverstein
2: poem that has no meaning in my life. Right in there. Permanently in there. Love it. Prime mover. This was my favorite song in the record for years and years. Mostly because of the drum performance. Uh, you can see that. The song itself kind of continues that ride between jazz and rock. But honestly, what it is, is pure rush. Mm-hmm. Rush has for so long been the undefined band. People have spent years trying to put them in a particular genre. The early years, they were progressive or hard rock or hard pop. Later years, they were even more undefined because they spent time in this softer space and then ramped up with more aggressive, metalier albums. Uh, Getty Lee repeatedly called them the world's biggest cult band. <laughs> and there are many of us that were willing to follow them anywhere musically. As I've talked about many times on this show, my primary musical influence was my older brother, and he used to listen to early Rush when I was a little kid, and it seeped in and I became obsessed. But as we got older, our musical passions became more and more divergent. I was still devoted to Rush and experimented listening to other things, and he fell away from the Rush camp to some degree. When a new Rush album would be released, I would bring it up to him and he would make a snarky comment like, Is Getty going to sing in all minor keys? Or how many shun words is Neil going to use this time? (laughs) So I had to take a look at it. And Neil did have a habit of using words that ended in T-I-O-N for many albums. And this album was the epitome of that habit. There are seven in this song alone. Wow. But it is a great song about realizing that we are not in, in control of anything in this life. That life, for the most part, is very random. The primary through line for the song is the line, anything can happen, because anything is exactly what happens, and it's another example of taking the time to realize what is happening around you. The point of the journey is not to arrive. These words were lifeblood to me at that age, and I felt like I was witnessing really coming to terms with mortality in the moment. I think when we are young, we all feel like we're going to live forever. Everything seems so far away. And hearing these words, it was me seeing someone get to that cusp of life where they know they won't live forever, and it was time to start really living. And it was quite fascinating. Here's a piece of prime mover right here.
0: Basic temperamental.
1: feel like this song continues that, that line of Rush songs where they have themes surrounding like the nature of belief, yes. uh, the existence of God, and the reality of, of free will in everybody's lives. Uh, it, it's definitely a a more traditional, lyrically Rush-themed song yes, than very I much think so. anything else on this album yep. is. Uh, uh, obviously, musically, it's, it's very new. Uh, do you know where the title for this came from? I do. I have it. You go ahead. I was going to say, Matthew, let me present you the portrait of a man who thinks and thereby gets things done. Mr. Jimbo Cobb might be called a prime mover, a talent which has to be seen to be believed. In just a moment, he'll show you his friends and you how he keeps both feet on the ground and his head in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) That was a bad read, but I did it anyways. So this title is, it shares the title with the Twilight Zone episode 57, Prime Mover which is about a man with telekinetic powers and his uh, business partner. And they end up using his skills to win at gambling in Las Vegas and become incredibly greedy. But then they realize they've gotten too greedy and they have become morally corrupt. So the guy with telekinetic powers pretends to lose the powers. And they return back to their old jobs working in, I believe, a diner. Uh, when you find out that actually the guy with telekinetic powers had never lost them at all. He just was looking out for his friend.
2: mm. A good, uh, it's not a bad episode. I've seen it before. It's but. a good episode. and But the term prime mover, that is what mm-hmm. it's based on. But the term prime mover itself yes. is a term coined by Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Aristotle from everybody by uh, Mortimer Adler says this, the prime mover is pure actuality, being totally wow. devoid of matter or potentiality. In addition, this immaterial being, being is a perfect being, a being lacking no perfection that remains for it to attain. This perfect being, which is the prime mover of the universe, Aristotle, called God. God is not the only immaterial being in the universe. The intelligences that keep the stars in their eternal rounds through being attracted by the perfection of God are also immaterial. But though they too are immaterial, he did not regard them as perfect or pure actualities. Only God is that. The conception of God as prime mover, and the conception of God as creator are alike in three respects, immaterial, immutability, and perfection of the divine being. Oh. So, and that is what you get when you listen to Rush. It is not just music. It is philosophy. It is literature. It is self-discovery. And it makes you think, and that is what great art does. Say what you will about Getty's voice or all the things that marginalize this band, but it is art.
1: Would you say that it is uh, not of sight and sound, but of mind?
2: Yeah. Watch out for that
1: window. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can't help. Uh, that's good. Right? Lock and key. Definitely the darkest song on the record. Oh, yes. Uh, it has almost a malevolent quality to it. And it starts out kind of sounding like a bad 80s
1: buddy cop movie theme song, <laughs> to me, anyways. <laughs> it's, it's an
2: unusual beginning. It just doesn't fit to me. but It makes sense, though, considering the subject matter. If we yes. assume that the record is about instinct, then the song is about the most primal instinct that most of us have learned to tame, the killer instinct. Mm-hmm. And it handles it in a very Neil Peart way, by analyzing and describing those repressed instincts and feelings and how sometimes the balance can sometimes fail, strong emotions can tip the scale. Again, awesome things to find it in a rock song. The song is loosely based on a book called The Heart of the Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers, released in 1940, about two deaf mutes who are friends, and one of them becomes violent, ends up in a mental institution, and how the other friend deals with that over time. It's a very interesting book, actually. Uh, And Neil just captures that simmering violence so well. We carry a sensitive cargo below the waterline, ticking like a time bomb with a primitive design, behind the finer feelings, the civilized veneer, the heart of a lonely hunter, guards a dangerous frontier. So for the first and only time in a Rush album, Geddy Lee plays a five-string bass. Uh, he had been searching for melodic ways to play the bass, and has he had noticed that the keyboards could play lower than any bass could, and the five-string gave him some extra top end. But he ultimately must not have been a big fan, or we would have seen it more, because it's the only time he ever plays it. Uh, Alex plays dark and frenetic, definitely louder than most of the others on here. And Neil does something that is usually only reserved for the live shows. He plays a drum solo mid-song. Ooh! In fact, the band stays and supports the solo by keeping the time behind him, and it is superb. You be the judge right here. listen to that over and over. And over
1: Apparently a man. lot of a lot of other people did too cuz it hit number 16 on the Billboard Hot Mainstream Rock charts, uh, rock track charts for some, excuse me.
2: That solo uh, was which is pretty good. Was just absolutely crazy as a it, kid, but I'm like, what is that? It
1: definitely stands out because like you said, it's not something that they recorded and put on albums frequently. It nah. was more of a live thing. So it, it definitely stands out on here as kind of a a, a weird moment where you're like Wait, what's happening right now? Yeah. Is this a lead into a guitar
2: solo? And no, it's just a drum solo. It's just Neil being Neil. Mission.
1: What an interesting song. Yeah? And it kind of, this one, I, when I was listening to this, I suddenly had like a- Tell me oh. about it. So the line specifically, hold your fire, keep it burning bright. And I was like, oh shit. Like literally hold your fire. Like the guy juggling the balls on the cover. Mind blown. Uh but the lyrics for this song are, are, are all about having a mission in life and knowing what you want to do, uh, but not knowing what choices are going to get you there to that mission. Mm. Like what are the best choices to make to achieve your mission in life? And I thought that was very interesting because there are so many rock stars and 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 famous people and and writers and artists and things that have that same sort of a, well, they started writing music at five years old, and they, they've always known they wanted to be a songwriter, or, you know, she started painting at only two, right. she and, and she's her... been painting
2: since. And they have this idea that we that gave is her their- a oil gave uh, a canvas in her crib, and she yeah. was immediately coming up with masterpieces. Oh,
1: in the womb, she was already <laughs> composing music by tapping on Mama's stomach. Like- To me, that kind of stuff, it's like these people seem to have this mission and this drive to do it. Right. But it's fascinating to see at least two, probably all three of these musicians contributing to this song saying, hold on a minute. We had no idea how we were going to do this. Like we had an idea of what we wanted to do with our lives, but we had no idea how to do it. Because when it's presented from the future, looking back, it's always, well, I made this choice and this choice and this
2: choice, and I did all these things perfectly to get there. They never knew. No. And they st- they didn't, even up until the last record, they didn't, and like, we don't know what we're going to do. That's so awesome right? to hear. And the part of getting in the studio and we're like, we don't know what we're going to make right now. We just know it's not going to be the same record that we just made. Yeah. And that, that, keep pursuing what they wanted so badly, whether that's a dream or a passion or whatever, just pursue it with this unquenchable thirst and you start to realize you know why these words were so important to a 15 year old because i'm hearing this and not being afraid to go for things that you you want yeah even if they seem too ridiculously huge and you're like no you just you just keep going for it you keep going for it and i looked up to these these guys so much for for these things this this song also charted hit number 33 on the rock chart but that was the live version of the song from mm-hmm. from show of hands According to Alex, this song went through many changes during the production process, uh, many rewrites and revisions. Uh, Actually, somewhere out there is another version of this song in the vault. So you brought up the William Ferry Brass Band. Indeed, I did. Rush has long said that they have no alternative versions of songs in the vault to release later on. No... Nothing for a manager to capitalize on.
1: And we talked about that in Permanent Waves, right? How there wasn't going to be... There's nothing. When they started to, God forbid, pass away, uh, uh, that there wasn't going to be post-posthumous albums released. Correct. Because they don't have any of that material.
2: But Getty said in an interview that there is a version of this song somewhere that has the full Monty on it. They recorded a version with a full brass band. What? That had been suggested by Peter Collins. They flew in the William Ferry band. They recorded it and mixed and had it all ready to go. So someday (laughs) that is going to leak. That will surface eventually. And I'm surprised that it hasn't already. And we are going to get a taste of the things that they wouldn't let us experience for all these years. Unless they purposely destroyed it. No, he referenced it Like a couple of years ago. All right. So that recently. It's there. Okay. It's there. Huh. It exists. Someone's going to dig it out. We know because, you know, sad fat. We know, you know, Neil was sick for three years with cancer. They knew about it and no one else knew about it. They kept that secret so closely guarded. So they can keep secrets pretty well. Yeah. So if there is a version of it, they're waiting for the right moment, whatever that moment is. Release the Williams Ferry cut.
1: Just do it.
2: We're going to hashtag Williams Ferry. So uh, back to the lyrics, the passion, the drive, the determination. It's all wrapped up in this section right here. It just goes. It, that's set right out where he's just like <laughs> flailing. You never know what, what you're going to get. I think this is the strongest vocal performance for Getty on this record. Uh, it lived in their live show for about 20 years. Wow. This song. I just love seeing this song live because it was a little different arrangement. Very, very cool. Uh, Would you like to turn the page?
1: Yeah. So I got a question for you right up front. Yeah. Do you think this is influenced by the Bob Seger song of the same name? Specifically the two things that I am thinking about here. No. Number 1, the introduction that light guitar noise. Okay. Sounds a little familiar to the Bob Seger song. Okay. And secondly, second of all, the line, "Nothing can survive in a vacuum." Mm-hmm. Do you think they are referring specifically to the fact that no art is created in a vacuum without inspiration from other sources like say Bob Seger?
2: Uh no. Okay. I'm gonna say no. Uh, that's just I don't feel like that's Neil's style. Okay. So. I was just
1: curious because the 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 guitar at the beginning of this sounds different than everything mm-hmm. else on the album. It sounds a little out of place. Yeah. And I immediately, for some reason, probably just because of the name, I immediately thought Bob Seger, and right. I was like, oh, maybe they're making some kind of a reference and then building on it. I get that, but I couldn't find any, you know, sources for that or anything, and, right. I, and I was curious what. You as a, obviously somebody who has a much deeper
2: knowledge of this. It's definitely Uh, the rockiest song on the record. Yes. But, but no, I don't think they would reference Bob Seger without saying it at some point. So we're, we're seven songs in. Mm -hmm. Do you see why the older fans might have an issue with this stuff?
1: Yes. Actually eight songs in, right?
2: This is the eighth song. This is the eighth song. Okay. So if your point point of reference for Rush is moving pictures or 2112, can you see why those guys would take an issue with their direction? Yes. They're not the same band that they were in the seventies and they wanted it that way. They were never going to be told to play this or that. Never going to listen to a label telling them they could not, they could only release a copy of a different record. They were very much going to play to their own beat, regardless of sales. They knew that they had some fans that would follow them anywhere and the attrition that they suffered as a result of the stylistic changes they were making was fine if they can continue to do what that made, them happy. Mm-hmm. It made them happy. This is a complicated song. Getty uh, said this, this is one of the more difficult songs to play live because the bass line, which is extremely busy, is completely unrelated to the vocal line. Uh, added a bunch, you know, put a bunch of time signature changes in there. I could see why they stopped playing this after this tour. Um, again, this has another wild Alex solo, furious and way out there. Um, I
1: would say, I I actually think that's one of the highlights of this song. In my opinion, it's definitely, it is wild. It is not anything else like, like anything else that he's done, but it is definitely interesting. And I, I enjoy that part of it
2: a lot. Yeah. He, we talked about how earlier, how Alex was looking for a place in the music and the solo is where it was evident. He was making a statement short bursts of uncontrollable passion or maybe rage as he saw his sound being marginalized a little bit right off the bat this song is especially poignant for fans of neil in the wake of his death that opening stanza sounds like this Nothing can survive in a vacuum. No one can exist all alone. Neil was an intensely private dude, craved his alone time, but even he recognized he couldn't do it by himself. Even when his daughter and wife passed away in 1970, or 1997 and 98, he embarked on a 55,000-mile motorcycle journey by himself to try to figure out a way to heal or to see if that was even possible. But even then... He still reached out to his friends and family when necessary because it was impossible to do this on his own. Even the lines of, you can't soothe pain with sympathy, must have been troubling for his bandmates. Because when a tragedy like that occurs, all you want to do is be sympathetic, but you worry that it comes off as self-serving. Am I doing this to make myself feel better or them? It's a tremendous song it's totally underrated. This that that part of it just eats at me still. Uh, like these were heroes to me, and I don't use that term lightly. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't typically want to make heroes out of people that make art, but there was more to them than music. They were, they were, they they are two of them are just really good human beings, and something you want to emulate. So, uh, yeah, Ty Sham,
1: Ty Sham. According to Rush Chemistry, the definitive biography, (laughs) this was an experiment in composition and it was influenced by classical Chinese music, which I think is one of the nicest things we can say about it. Sure. In a 2009 interview with Blender, uh, Geddy Lee expressed regret in including it on this album, calling it an error and saying, we should have known better. Uh, Lifeson has called this song a little corny in a 2012 interview with Total Guitar. And in another interview in 2016 about the worst songs Rush had, Had released, Lifeson said, "Tyshann is one of the worst, easily.
2: Yeah. uh,
1: uh, Now we
2: get to it. The song that is consistently ranked as the worst song in the Rush catalog. There are hosts of fans that mark the song as unlistenable, and you cannot-
1: Oh, I don't think it's that
2: bad. You cannot count me on that list. There are terrible Rush songs, for sure. Dog Ears from Test for Echo. Neurotica from Roll the Bones. Face Up from Roll the Bones are skippable songs, but I don't skip this song. The song was an experiment, like you said. It was innocent, and it's definitely a song for the time. It's 1987. Right. Heavy use of keys and this weird flute effect, which is vaguely reminiscent of sounds you would hear in Chinese classical music. Yeah, Uh, The song is about the holy mountain of Mount Tai, Mm -hmm. which is located in the Shandong province of China, the highest point in that province, and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, The Emperor Huang Ti had so much power that he was able to summon all the spirits of the world to him on top of Tai Shan to procl- proclaim his power. Legend has it that if you climb to the top of his mountain and raise your hands to heaven, you will live to be at least 100 years old.
1: It's a pretty good power to have,
2: right? Neil Peart uh, wrote these lyrics while sitting at the top of the mountain. It's actually a pretty amazing story. Right. He climbed it while on a bicycle trip through China. There are a lot of weird samples. Used throughout the song, including a toothbrush striking a plastic water bottle. (laughs) I saw that.
1: That's amazing.
2: And it just reeks of experimentation. It's not horrible, but it's not great. Uh, But I think it fits in well with the sound of the record. Have a listen.
1: experimental definitely not like anything else in rush's catalog no i would never say this was the worst song
2: oh trust me no Uh, i wouldn't either
1: uh definitely not something that i would ever necessarily seek out either but one thing i did find very interesting yeah uh, you said mount Tai, uh uh, correct uh, it is associated closely with sunrise birth and renewal oh And to me, I like that. That's very much kind of where this album sits is this was one of the albums that, you know, like you said, the old fans were like, and then this might've ushered in some new fans in a sort of rebirth and renewal situation. And one of the best things about that is that it meant that Rush could keep making albums because if you don't have that, if you don't have an influx of new fans as an artist, you stagnate and you die because you can't. Make money and survive in right. this industry.
2: And your fans will start dying. Exactly. And th- this song was often fodder for uh, for jokes within the band, hmm. as uh, Lee and Lifeson would make fun of Neil for the song for years. Uh, Getty <laughs> Lee once said, uh, guys in bands really need all the ammunition we can get to make fun of each other. <laughs> it just sort of landed on Tai Shan. I recognize that some people love that song, and I don't feel as harshly about it as I may have. It's just a really good reason to kid (laughs) kneel. So that flute sound uh, is sampled uh, throughout the song is a shakuhachi flute, which is actually a Japanese instrument. Uh, It is the bamboo flute that you typically picture and stuff like this. It has been used and or sampled in tons of Western music, including Brothers in Arms, by Dire Straits. There you go. An album we recently covered on this program.
1: I feel like we brought that up too, didn't we? Did we talk about I the Shakaichi? I, I think so. I think I had that. Uh, I think I had that in my notes, if I recall correctly. Oh well,
2: good enough. Yeah. Uh, high Water. High Water. Final song on this record, and I'm sure these two guys in the room are saying, "Thank God <laughs> this is almost <laughs> over." It's another experiment, in my opinion. A lot of focus on rhythm and not a straight-ahead rock composition. It continues a long line of last Rush songs. So if there are some Rush fans out there listening to this, I wonder, do you feel the same way about last Rush songs as I do? So first of all, they are generally the most experimental songs on the record. Not always. And they always leave me with a very strange feeling. I think part of it was that at the time I first heard the song, whatever album it happened to be, you always wondered when the next time that you would hear a new Rush song again. It was always like, this is it. Maybe there will be no more. Or how long is it going to be until the next Rush song? So there's this strange emotional connection to these last Rush songs. And maybe that's the next Rush episode right there. Last Rush songs. Ooh, I think would be a good episode. Right? So another song focuses on the elements, this time water continues an almost eastern-sounding theme, and Neil had this to say about the song. I always feel comfortable when I'm near water, be it the sound of the ocean or even the refreshing feeling of a dip in the swimming pool. I remember being in the center of one of Japan's biggest cities, and the noise pollution was incredible. But right in the middle was this garden with a small waterfall that ran over a bunch of stones. It was designed in such a way that if you sat by the waterfall, the sound of the water would drown out all the surrounding noises, I think the Japanese understand the therapeutic nature of water better than most. And I think he's correct. Yeah. Nothing sounds like a little water garden. And here's a bit of high water right here. Just to
0: see the starry dawn.
2: I love it. I, I love this record. I know we've been at it for a while, and I feel like I haven't done this album justice, but I could go on for many more hours.
1: I expect that you can.
2: Uh, and I always find it hard to edit stuff out from these episodes. Uh, this music is to me is very much like oxygen and I breathe it a lot. <laughs> I hope some of you found this educational, maybe piqued your curiosity and are willing to give it a listen, even though it might not be in your wheelhouse. Or it may not even sound like Rush that you know. If you know moving pictures if you know tom sawyer or or free will or limelight that's not what this sounds like it it it's it's completely different it's a it's an outlier in their catalog and it it's something that i absolutely uh, adore but you know if you are like this guy sucks and why the fuck is he talking about this?
1: Well, hang on. We, 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 wait, uh, you're, jumping ahead. you're jumping ahead here. Did I jump ahead? We'll, we'll, okay, we'll get there. We'll okay. get there. All right. I was going to say two quick things. First of all, this is the first time I've ever listened to this album from beginning to end.
2: Of course, that makes uh, sense.
1: Uh, uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was, uh, <laughs> I mean, why, why else would I? Uh, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was very different from everything else in Russia's catalog, like you've already said. Yeah. Very enjoyable, and I think it is worth a listen, uh, if for no other reason than to say, okay, this is a band that we know what their, you know, whatever you call it, their traditional or their popular sound is, this is another direction they can go in. The other thing I want to say, I love how much you love Rush, (laughs) because I don't have anything in my life that I'm that devoted to, that I'm that in love with, that I know that much about, and on the one hand, I love it, the other hand is... It is so hard for me to do these episodes because I have to constantly – like I'm looking for little tidbits and I know that I'm not going to find anything that's like, did you know Getty Lee wore like – Converse sneakers when they were recording this, and that's that. If you listen to the the one-off track, there's a squeak in the background.
2: That's his shoe. They weren't. I'm
1: not gonna find that kind of. They shit. They
2: weren't Converse. They were they were Chuck Tay.
1: Exactly. I'm not gonna find that shit. <laughs> this is like if I if I was like Matthew, we're doing an episode about eating nachos and masturbating, which is what I'm excellent at <laughs> and, and very knowledgeable about. And you would be like, oh shit, I don't shit, know, and I don't you'd know be like,
2: about it either. You'd though, be like, see.
1: I like when the nachos have cheese on them, and I'd be like, Matthew. <laughs> Sour cream, obviously, is the preferred. Cheese is secondary to the sour cream on the nachos. And obviously, you need to lean backwards when you're... Well, anyways... (laughs) But I love it. And I do love It is difficult for me to do these Rush albums, but I love doing them. I with you. appreciate
2: you tolerating me for that.
1: I, I I love doing it with you because it is a complete window into you. However, <laughs> like you were just saying, uh-huh. uh, if there is anybody out there that thinks you're a crazy person or, or nuts, how do they get in touch with us?
2: Well, they could go to Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash audio judo. They can go to Twitter at audio judo or they can go to Instagram at audio underscore judo or they can email us at info at and if they don't
1: think we're crazy and they want to support the podcast there's a real easy way to do that you can become one of our patrons if you go to patreon.com forward slash audio judo for only five dollars a month you can sign up for the front row seats tier that includes two-day early access to all of the episodes, a shout-out on a future episode as a loyal producer, uh, bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops, and occasional bonus content such as unedited in, unedited interviews – got to take that word out because I can never pronounce it – unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and little tiny tidbits that we cut out of episodes, uh, mostly due to us uh, drinking and burping and farting. You can also uh, sign too up for much the tequila. Too much tequila. Uh, you can also sign up for the backstage pass tier, which is a little bit more expensive. It's 20 bucks a month. However, you get everything from the front row seats tier, plus a very special personalized gift from both of us, and the chance to co-host an audio judo episode on the album of your choice. That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier, and it can only be activated once. But we do appreciate all of those people. Absolutely. And it does help us out a lot. It means that we can keep buying uh, new gear to keep producing the episode. We can buy beer and tequila. Right.
2: Uh, if and one anything of our pieces el- of gear blows up in between weeks and we can't figure out why, then, you know, we could replace it. If there it to.
1: is. Yeah. So, so that's it.
2: Yeah, we have episodes coming up from Nirvana, Tori Amos, and a host of other artists that Kyle hasn't mentioned yet because he hasn't filled in the blanks in the calendar. <laughs> I gotta get on that. Uh, other than that, we will talk to everybody in two weeks. Bye bye, everybody. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>